0: Oh hello. Uh, you caught me admiring my Everly Stock bag. I have a few of them. And uh the reason I admire it so much and I love using their gear is because it's amazing. So the one of the other reasons I love Everly Stock is they support uh military and law enforcement openly. Uh and, and what I mean by that is there are other companies out there where they will make gear specifically for us, but we're more like a dirty little secret. Where Glenn Everly, the founder and owner of Everly Stock, is a veteran, a former Olympian, and a proud supporter of not only law enforcement, but also military folks. And on top of that, they make the best gear and apparel, the bags and apparel that I've ever used. So head on over to Everly Stock, put in the ones ready code for your 10% discount and make sure that you're supporting the folks that openly and honestly support us. Appreciate it. So,
1: hey, everybody, welcome back to the Ones Ready podcast. We're happy to have you. We have a pretty uh, interesting guest, which uh, I'm really looking forward to, because if you're anything like me, space is fascinating. I mean, I'm out there um, with my family nearly every night, as long as the weather's good, actually looking up at the stars and, and you know, figuring, finding new stars and checking out satellites and stuff like that. So um, I'm really looking forward to our guest, uh, who is Mr... Cody Kelly, uh, working for NASA. So appreciate you joining us.
2: Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. It's... No, go ahead. Like, start, to, start... Oh, yeah. so just start talking. Um,
2: <laughs> just start talking. Yeah, gr- great intro. Um, yeah, Cody Kelly. I, I work I work at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, which is up in uh, Greenbelt, Maryland. Um, I'm the National Affairs Mission Manager uh, for Search and Rescue. So, you know, coming, like, I grew up in the Hill Country, just north of San Antonio so we had a lot of uh, air traffic into Kelly field and Lackland and Randolph and um, started that bit of passion for service and, and wanting to join join the military but unfortunately um, I was diagnosed with uh, type 1 diabetes which meant that that, that career dream was, was pretty much ended at that point. Um, I had, you know back in the 90s I had really fallen in love with the search and rescue, and uh, PR community as a kid, which is like the nerdiest thing ever. Um, when Scott O'Grady uh, w- was shot down over Bosnia, and there was you know the, the massive PR effort to uh, to bring him home. And I just remember being captivated by that in the in the late '90s that we w- we as a nation would commit those kind of resources to go find a downed aviator and bring him home. Um, and I was very lucky within NASA to you know over time starting out started out as a spacesuit designer. Uh, working on our, our lunar spacesuit that we were going to use to go back to the moon, Mars. And then I got into crew survival, uh, really working on, um, life rafts, beacons, survival equipment, more like in within the kind of the Air Force's, um, AFE air crew flight equipment, uh, flight physiology kind of realm. Um, but I started understanding that there was a lot of DOD connections and, and Air Force connections to the type of work that we were doing to make sure we could keep our astronauts safe. And we could we could bring them home safely, as well as support that larger kind of whole of government PR mission.
1: It, it's crazy to me to think about the amount of variables that you guys are are um, having to take into consideration. Because you know, if we if we look at personnel recovery or search and rescue in, we'll, we'll just call it the continent of Africa, right? So you have tyranny of distance. It's an enormous place. Um, right there, you know, there's some elements, you know, lack of water in some regions, extreme heat, sometimes, you know, um, cool or, or at least temperature temp- temperature swings so that, you know, hypothermia could happen. I mean, like that's a that's a real problem that we deal with, being able to have enough fuel to, to get aircraft to pick somebody up or, or to rescue somebody. But I mean, you're dealing with I, things that I variables that I don't even know yeah. or understand. I mean, you're talking about, I, I, I couldn't even tell you, like, I, I really, I, I don't know. What are some of the things <laughs> yeah. that you guys are dealing with?
2: So, so for us, our office, Um, you know, I started out, I started out working on the Orion program, which is our capsule that's going to take uh, crew members to, to the moon, moon and back and do that kind of deep space exploration. And we actually went down and worked with the PJs, and that PJ's pro community to understand how we would do open ocean rescue. Because when you launch a space capsule to the moon or to the space station, um, they could land anywhere in the world if there was an emergency. Um, so we did a lot of work looking at how do we integrate the, the Air Force mission. So, you know, working with the C-17s out of Charleston and, and Hickam and the, the Alaska Air Guard guys, and then working with the, the 60 community to, you know, what is what are the limits to how far out they can go to to drop PJs in the water or rescue the rescuer in the event of a maritime rescue, and then the C-130 community working with Combat Air Forces to to make sure that they have the right electronics gear to to find, fix, and locate um, astronauts in the water or a capsule, whether it's a SpaceX capsule, Boeing capsule, or Orion capsule, anywhere in the world, and that really ties back to the the very historic um, NASA DOD terrestrial rescue piece. Um, going all the way back to Gemini to 8. So Neil Armstrong, back in the 60s, they had an abort while they were on orbit, and they had to land in the South China Sea, and it was PJs that went out and made that jump and that rescue and, and was able to find Neil Armstrong and Scott Carpenter, or or its partner, and, and bring them back home safely. So NASA has this history all the way back to the 60s with uh, with DDMS or you know, Department of Defense, uh, manned spaceflight support, to to provide that kind of terrestrial rescue services. And now, you know, our office, we we support the 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 US search and rescue program. So that's working with Air Combat Command, the Coast Guard, um, and NOAA to make sure our satellites can find you anywhere in the world. And that includes support to downed aviators overseas and then civilians here ponies. Um and then in the future, you know, that you're talking about the the tyranny of distance, we're looking at what would you do for lunar search and rescue. Like, like no, no kidding. If you had an astronaut that an isolated personnel event on the moon, right. When someone first told me, I was like, wait, is this, is this a joke? That's what I'm sitting like, here. Is it, is this, <laughs> like, is this for real? And then you look at how, um, and again, I'm coming on here. I'm, I'm not, I'm not an official spokesman for NASA, right? This is Cody Kelly, NASA employee um, <laughs> that, you know, but you look at the, the ecosystem of users in the moon, right? You, we're going to have government-sponsored astronauts. So that are we have the Artemis program that is partnered with SpaceX and other companies to take astronauts to the lunar South Pole. You have, you know, you just have like the rich guy that wants to go land on the moon and do the tourism thing. Or you may have international partners that want to go. And we also see that our nation's adversaries, um, potential adversaries, and that near-peer threat, that the the moon is one of those areas where there's resources and just the fact that you're there means that we can't be there. So it's, 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 it's the whole like the South China sea and that the territorial parts where we have to make sure that we're establishing good norms and behaviors in the moon. And part of that is search and rescue. You know, we want to make sure that if someone's hurt, you know, if it's 2030 or 2035 and someone gets hurt on the moon, we have this, you know, kind of PR and CSAR system that can, that can help them find, fix, locate, and bring them, bring them home. And so we're, it's like uh, legitimately we're working with SEER guys. We're working with the PJs. Um, we're working up at, at, the, at the Pentagon and other agencies to understand that, that whole mission and how we can bring our national capabilities to bear on it. Okay. You, you said a lot. So like, I was, <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah. So, um, you know, the big thing, you talk about the tyranny of distance, you talk about the, the, the issues. You know, think about if you were in the Horn of Africa, but if you had a terror in your spacesuit, you, you, would, you would die within minutes. Like, it's the, not just a tyranny of distance, it's a tyranny of time, because the, the time to effect is so much quicker on the moon, because we have limited resources, and, and it's so much more dangerous. And, and for us to be able to go do those missions of real consequence, like lunar geology um, going in what are called lava tubes, so caves on the moon, and being able to go down into what are called permanently sh- permanently shaded regions or PSRs. That's where no light has ever hit, but that's also where we think there may be liquid ice. But that also brings up, hey, you're climbing in a spacesuit down the down a steep slope in the pitch pitch black. Jeez. Like, who would think that could be an issue? Oh. You know what I mean? So that's that's where I get we get to use our uh, my background is in, in the fire service, get to use a little bit of a technical rescue. Background and then also uh, my engineering brain to try to solve some of these problems.
0: PJs everywhere are so excited about this right now. They're like, "Well, <laughs> we could set up ropes, man!" But like, it, it beg- yeah, no, that's
2: <laughs> ropes, pulleys, uh, mechanical advantage. Like, you just throw some buzzwords out, yeah. and, you know, and you're good to
0: go. Right? So they're they're in. But also, when when you actually get your patient, how does like a sixth of the gravity affect how your body works? You know, like, are there are there medical professionals like working on that problem? Like if you're injured, yeah. How much different is it?
2: That's that's a big thing that they're they a lot of studies on. What's called incapacitated crew rescue or, or ICR, um, looking at the mechanisms of injury. So you know if you had a rover rollover, you know how would that how would that impact you on the moon? Um, the big thing now, you know, in the early missions is looking at those slips, trips, falls, because you know if you if you trip in your house. Uh, you just get a bruise, right? But if you trip on the moon and you're wearing a 300-pound spacesuit that's real bulky, real awkward, um, are you going to break a bone? Are you going to break an arm? You know, is something going to happen to you um, in the during that event? And, and we saw during the Apollo program, um, if you go look at the videos, like, it wasn't all just hunky-dory. A lot of people, they did have some falls while they're out there doing geology. And now we want to do geology, but take it to the next level. And yeah. So there's a lot of work being done on incapacitated crew rescue that's been done over you know the last five, 10, 15 years to make sure that we they put attachments on the suits. And, you know, you're basically using some, something like a sked on the moon to, to, to drag that person potentially back to a lunar rover or, or a lunar lander. So all those guys that have sked experience, you know, hey, come on, sign up for the astronaut <laughs> program. That's nuts.
0: <laughs> Yeah, uh, all I'm thinking is, is, is as you sell this stuff or you, you do these briefings, I don't know, I would be like, hey, in case of space pirates and injuries, these are what, this, these are the things that we're working towards.
2: So that's that's an interesting, uh, interesting comment because we, you know, as much as we work technically at NASA, you know, I, I'm an engineer by trade. I went to Texas A&M and did my aerospace engineering degree, but I also did a lot of policy work at the George Bush School of Government. So I did an undergraduate certificate there and that's where I really got involved with the military establishment and how we, you know, work treaties and, and stuff with between countries for stuff like this. So as, as technical as these problems are, you know, injured, injured tourists on the moon, injured U S persons on the moon. that's a lot of the political part behind it too. Right. Yep. Because the the moon is a, a, it's a kind of a sovereign body. Like no one can claim the moon. Um, and we also have what's called the 1967, a rescue and return treaty that really guides, like, hey, if someone is hurt or injured while doing spaceflight, it's a national responsibility to help rescue them if you have the capabilities. So talk about pirates and elements like that. We were just in a meeting yesterday where someone brought that up, like, hey, 2050, you know, what's what's the Coast Guard's role in that? You know, are we going to be combating, um, you know, piracy in the moon? You know, as this stuff grows and grows and grows. So. We're in the we're in this area of time within NASA and within the space community that all these futuristic ideas of from those me- those movies from the 80s, you know, space pirates and stuff like that, like this is like actually getting we're actually discussing this as policy because the the barrier to entry for space flight is so low now because you have all these commercial interests like SpaceX, uh, Blue Origin, you know, anyone with you know with the right amount of money can can launch stuff into orbit. Which is, can be good or bad.
1: I mean, we should probably, you know, consult with uh, Ridley Scott or somebody like that. Yeah, but, that's, uh,
2: that's, I, I think so too, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I want. That, I want that. I want that. Like the, the machine gun, like they have from Alien. You know, like who put her in charge,
1: man? Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I mean, Sigourney yeah. Weaver. She's. You need to take her up. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I was. Gonna, that, I was that, going to ask since since you are dealing with. That tyranny of distance and time, um, and you know, one of the things that we we kind of train everybody, at least on the soft side of the house, is your your T your tactical casualty care medicine. I, I'm going to mess up the acronym, but uh, you know, to to <clears throat> try and help yourself first. So I, I'm assuming that we're going to be like the astronauts are being taught this, or or you know, the ones that are going to be on the moon, and then there's going to be all kinds of other stuff that, that they're trained to. Um, I mean, I'm I'm assuming so I'm kind of asking that, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah. So if you look at the, if you look at how were they're selecting astronauts again, I'm not in privy to that. I wish, I wish I was on the astronaut selection committee. That'd be cool. But if you, if you look at the kind of folks that they're, they're selecting, um, you know, you have a Delta force doctor, you had, you know, you had folks like that. You have, um, you know, Johnny Kim, you know, the, you know, Navy, You know, Navy SEAL medic. You have you have all these people that have a lot of really good expeditionary medical capability as a base, and then they do an amazing job of doing space medicine at NASA. So that's the big thing: is you want to be able to um, treat yourself first and treat your buddy. And and we don't ever do spacewalks currently, and we don't we're not planning in the early days to do lunar spacewalks on your own. So you would always have kind of your battle buddy going with you to go do these explorations. And be able to provide that initial that initial nine line, right? Of say, hey, this is this is these are the injuries, mechanisms of injury, and get that to someone that can help help you out. Um, and that's something our office is working with the PR community and the EVA community or extra vehicular activity community to develop what that NASA nine line looks like for lunar a lunar medical event. Um, we did a lot of work with the PJs from the you know the 88 test. Uh, to do the nine line for the terrestrial rescue part for astronauts, but now we're expanding that potentially to what it would be for 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 lunar rescue as well. jeez.
1: So I mean, like I'm just again, i'm I'm going back to immediate casualty care, and I'm thinking, okay, well, trying to wrap up a, a tourniquet and and maybe a tourniquet it would yeah. not be the right tool for the mechanism of injury on the moon or something like that. but You know, a a tourniquet trying to wrap that around a spacesuit is probably unlikely, or it would have to take a special kind of tourniquet. So I'm I'm wondering, you know, is the answer built in kind of tourniquet mechanisms, or um, I I don't know. I'm just like, I'm, you guys are working with some extremely smart people uh, up there to include include yourself in, in. I don't know. You definitely don't need some idiot controller that knows zero about medicine or care to come and help you out.
2: <laughs> but, you know the big, the biggest thing we I've learned in my career, um, and this was something we learned a lot when we were doing the capsule recovery work, was to like talk to people outside of our 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 little bubble, our little echo chamber. Right? Some of the best ideas we had for um, doing patient immobilization on a rocking capsule came from like a junior airman that, or, or a really junior level PJ that was like, Hey, I saw this in training. I, Hey, let's try this out. And we actually went out in the Gulf of Mexico and, and tried it out. So that's one of those things where NASA were really smart. we you know, I would say we, I work with some of the best and brightest folks in the world, but we're also always open to talking to people outside of our industry because we know that may not be the best way to do it. Um, from, from our perspective, the, the big thing for, the medical care and all of that is to get them to a place of definitive medical care and get them kind of off the X, right? Because the moon wants to kill you just by environment alone. So if you can get them somewhere where you can get them pressure, get them repressurized somewhere safe, then you be, you can begin triaging those industry, inju- triaging those injuries um, effectively without having to worry about, you know, the moon's environment, you know, impacting that kind of medical care,
1: which so, is extremely re- unforgiving whether it's the moon or yeah. mars i mean i or just on the space station i i was um i was listening to a podcast this morning actually and they were <laughs> this is kind of funny and also relevant or irrelevant i don't know but um that you know there's no burping on the space station because there's no, there's no need like it's a, it's all passing gas uh you know farting basically uh, it, like whether that's true or not i don't know but i'm thinking like the, I'm thinking blood flow, right? Does blood flow the exact same way? Right. You know, if, if we have a, an open wound mechanism of injury, whatever it happens to be, like, does blood flow the same way? I I mean, does a tourniquet yeah. even work at that point? Like, I right. I don't know
2: and that's and that for us and for for NASA and even for our community that's where the space station the international space station and then NASA's efforts to now build more commercial space stations um that's where it's going to pay dividends because we can go answer those questions really quickly and you can put together that body of knowledge before we go to the moon before we go to Mars um and, and for us the the moon has always been a stepping stone for Mars exploration right it's it's like it's a 3 day trip versus a 6 month trip but it's still far enough where you can get yourself in trouble, right? Yeah. It's like where you go to college and you're just far enough away from your parents to, to party on the weekends, but you still can come home <laughs> if there's some kind of
1: emergency. If you'd like it.
2: <laughs> um, so that's, and so our, our plans right now are to do these initial landings in the in the mid-2020s and then actually build a, a lunar colony or a moon base in like 2030, 2032. So, so for us in our office, we're looking at how would you use those permanent settlements as rescue coordination centers, um, you know, like a PRCC mm. for the moon, you know, if, if you're doing that, if you're doing that kind of, if you have that kind of authority and, and that mission set belongs to like U.S. space com or someone like that.
0: Well, I, I think what's going to happen is you're going to have orbiting uh, special operations surgical teams with PJs that you launch down to the surface. They grab the person launch back up to the orbiting thing and back to the colony. I think I just figured it out. So you're <laughs> yeah, welcome, NASA.
2: You, 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 and, you, and every other PJ wants to do that, right? Like every, you know, there, there's like a there's a line out the door of PJs that want to go be astronauts now um, to to go to go perform this mission. So, um, you know, get in line behind Brent, get in, get in line behind everybody, all these <laughs> other guys that want to go. Um, but that's you know the best. The big thing is <clears throat> you know in the future that may be a solution, right? In 2050. But right now we're really leaning into. The, the medical expertise from PJs and all that all of that command and control experience that the DOD does really well for search and rescue and working to apply it to the, the lunar domain because it's a it's a civilian domain, it's a whole of government domain and it, it's a it's an area that's really being addressed in ways that I've never seen in my career before. Um, when, when so like again when someone said, hey we're going to go do lunar search and rescue, you know, that's almost something like something out of science fiction but like now we're actually working in the international community to get radio frequencies assigned to get, you know, you know, get satellite assets kind of picked out, figured out. Um, we're working with the Air Force Research Lab um, and other government folks to figure out, like, hey, how do we do this from picking up beacons to, you know, doing imagery for a PR event? You know, how do we apply what we've been doing for the last 20 years in Afghanistan, Middle East on that really high tempo uh, PR mission? and use some of those best lessons for, for the future. Um, And the the cool thing about, sorry.
0: No, no, I was, uh, I I think some of the things that people aren't thinking about is, is is just when you talk about the the tourism and, and all the different people out there, like when when we do what we do, if everybody doesn't have the same radios or the same frequencies or the same type of equipment that can read everything, right? Like the logistics, as I'm, as you're talking, I'm trying to run down like these logistics, logistical problems in my brain. And I'm, I'm going to have a headache as soon as we're done here because it's ridiculous.
2: Yeah. And that, and so that's, that's what we work every day. Like that's for, I would say, you know, in my perspective, um, I mean, I'm an engineer first and, you know, we do engineering, but it's a lot of configuration management to understand that, Hey, when, if this really happened, when you go out the door, everyone's on the same page sheet of music and everyone's moving forward in that regard. Um, And that's why we've worked so hard to standardize and socialize what all of our message traffic looks like so that whether you are uh, ESA, European Space Agency satellite, and a a DOD satellite or a a civilian satellite, you're going to be able to pick up those signals and relay those effectively. Um, So it's been a lot of regulatory process and a lot of um, socializing, you know, search and rescue, because, you know, one of the big problems we've always had with search and rescue is it's a lot like an insurance policy. Um, nobody wants to pay up front until they need it. Yep. And we're trying to, we're thinking about that, that 35 year from now threat. So you have to make sure we're getting the good foundational blocks today. Um, and, and, and the really cool thing about my job, and again, I think I have the best job at NASA because, you know, 50% of my time I get to go talk about, you know, moonwalking, um, not the dance, the actual, you know, actually <laughs> doing moonwalk. I
1: went straight to and, moonwalking.
2: And, and, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the other 50% of my time, we get to actually support real search and rescue every every day. You know, NASA supports the U.S. Sarsat program, which is a constellation of satellites that we use on GPS to, to find 406 megahertz beacons. Yeah. So when someone punches out of an ejection seat in an F-16 in Louisiana, we see that beacon and we're able to report on it. Um, we saw that actually during an exercise. We were working with that three down in Patrick. And we have this really cool web app that sees all the beacons. We're doing training for the SpaceX mission, and then like I see a news release say, "Hey, a, a pilot's missing in, in Louisiana," and I'm able to see it on my screen, and and that's the kind of thing that's like every day we get to make real impacts for the search and rescue community. You know, that's why I think I have the best job at, best job in the world, honestly, and the best job at NASA because um, we get to take all of the NASA expertise and satellites, satellite communications. But at the end of the day, we always know it's going to be some 19-year-old airman or 19-year-old Coast Guard swimmer that's going out and doing the rescue. And we get to have that connection back to the operational forces to make sure we're making good decisions so the end operator isn't overburdened trying to go rescue someone.
0: Yeah. It, yeah. Sorry. I'm. I, I, you got my brain, like, spinning a little bit on, on things. But, like, one All of the right. things that you said where the moon is always trying to kill you is funny because I remember when I was down in uh, in the jungle with Brent. <laughs> We did the jungle training. That's what they said about the jungle: is it's always trying to kill you. And then I'm thinking about the differences between. Trying to kill you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Brent (laughs) was—he's a psycho. My favorite psycho. Um, (laughs) But like, we we have experience in different things. I'm I'm just thinking—you change environments in space. I would think fairly often between sunlight and darkness. You're getting out of the space junk of our atmosphere and all these other things. It's kind of like taking someone from the jungle straight to Alaska, you know, and and being able to do all those different things. Um, and actually I had a question, I'm sorry, I'm rambling now. How, how do comms work out there? Do solar flares even affect anything without atmosphere?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. Com So calm, that's the, that's the, that's the biggest, the hardest part of this whole thing is the communications element. Yeah. Um, you know, and trying to make sure everyone is playing nicely in that whole communication spectrum, you know, here on earth, we have the FCC, we have all these protected frequencies, but the moon is kind of like the wild west right now where everyone you know, depending on who you belong to has different rules to work by. Um, and then also just the, you know, just having a communication relays in place. You know, right now there's not a lot of asset. You don't have GPS on the moon right now. You don't have uh, an Iridium sat phone capability on the moon. But NASA is working with commercial industry and our international partners to, to, to build and procure that, to be able to do that. Um, you know, right now we're looking... If you land on certain parts of the moon, you have direct ice, you know, direct vision back to the, back to earth, just like Apollo did. But we're looking to build communications relays. So you could go on the backside of the moon. um, Like they did in the Terminators movie.
1: So, I mean, are (laughs) we, are we talking like does VHF, UHF work on the moon? Or are we talking like TSMX mesh networks? Like what?
2: Yeah. So it's, it's, it's all of the above. Um, So for, for lunar surface communications, um, we are looking at UHF to UHF between between radio between um, spacesuits. So you're talking on like a 410 megahertz, um, you know, something like that. But a, a big thing for us is S band communications, mm. being able to talk up and down to satellites and relay that information kind of all over the moon. Um, there's also a lot of companies that are doing mesh networks and um, even Nokia is looking to do a, an LTE like a, a 5G LTE like cell phone service on the moon that's under a, f- a funded uh, NASA research program. So like you just take your iPhone up there and, and just talk on your iPhone. Um, I'm, I'm just kidding. That'd be the that'd be way in the future, but, <laughs> but like, you, know, you could do your TikTok <laughs> and, and all your stuff up there on the moon. Um, but that, that's, that's, that's really what my, our office is under all of that, um, that overarching umbrella to make sure we have good comms because that's always what fails in an operation yep. it's like I don't know where I'm at and I, I can't communicate where I'm at that because that's where issues arise
1: I, again I'm, I'm gonna go back to my my kind of my original opening salvo was there there are variables that I don't even know what you have to consider and yes comms being self-care being one of the most important ones but also exactly. comms. I I just, that is such an enormous problem. And then, you know, we, we almost take it for granted, you know, operationally or in training where, okay, I can, I can hit SATCOM or I can hit some kind of relay station. You're going, you know, the astronauts are going to an environment where none of that infrastructure is set up. There's nothing. And
2: and it's more dangerous right
1: like yeah
2: <laughs> there's no air like you just can't even breathe so um that's so that's what we, that's the kind of challenges we're looking from the the enterprise level is to make sure that we have you know we have communications back to earth to relay this information but we're also looking to make sure in the future that we're earth independent so you want, I want we want to make sure that everything that we're doing on the moon is kind of self-contained because we know that mars that's a 21 minute communication delay and and how can you, we can't be calling home all the time and say, Hey, I stubbed my toe, right? You gotta, we gotta make sure that we're self-reliant and we're building that capability for the future. Um, But it's interesting that communications comes up because that's the fight we have all the time to make sure that we're procuring the right communication solutions. We have the right requirements for that. and, And we're also scoping it in such a way that we don't buy a widget today that becomes obsolete tomorrow, because um, you see a lot of communications, right? It, you know, everything's all the rage for like one fiscal cycle, and then then you're like, this is it's a brick, right? I can't do anything with it. Um, so that's that's what we work all the time, and that's what we actually we work a lot within the terrestrial rescue part in the PR community uh, with the Joint Personnel Recovery Agency on some of their uh, technology specifications requirements for the future, um, and working with their Combat Command for that.
1: How how big is the the team that's working on this?
2: Uh, for for lunar, uh, they're you know it's it's a large inter, you know interagency effort. Um, for search and rescue, um, it's like it's like four people. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, it's, 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 it, No, it's it's like myself, and then we have some, we have contract support. Um, we lean a lot on um, Aerospace Core, which is a company that does a lot of our uh, systems engineering and integration. And we were able to get some of their, like, incredibly smart folks that do all this, do this kind of stuff for DOD, um, like NOAA, all these other government folks that do commercial SATCOM. And and they did an amazing job working on those definitions. Um, I'm kind of the, I heard a lot of the cats and try to figure out the requirements. I talked to folks like Brent, the SEER community, uh, PJs, and, and even folks at uh, AFIT, Air Force Institute of Technology. To understand some of the the policy and technical parts, um, so it's it's a very small team. The search and rescue office itself only has about four government employees and about twelve contractors that you know support all of the portfolio of work that we do. Um, but it's kind of cool because it's so small. We all know each other really well, and we're able to do stuff really fast um, with a lot lot less of the typical government bureaucracy. Man, it- and it and for us. Like, like lunar, it's a wild west, right? So like, start making assumptions, move off the X and and just go make it happen. Right. Um, Which has been something I've gotten in trouble for in my career, but it's, it's typically worked out. Okay.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, can't say I haven't been in trouble before too, for making assumptions and stuff like that. But I mean, honestly, it, it really, and I told Brent this. It actually sounds like you guys probably need a combat controller on there, like a retired combat controller.
2: A, g- I, a good contracting job yeah, after you get out. Yeah,
1: it definitely <laughs>
2: <laughs> But we you know that's the of talking to the combat control piece, that 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 has been something we you know, working with some of the ocean recovery work, um you know, seeing how the DOD does all that airspace coordination and stuff like that has been extremely interesting coming from a, from a NASA perspective. Um, we, we've we gone out with the Navy and done capsule recoveries. Um, we've gone out with SpaceX and done capsule recoveries. And just, you know, those skills that a CCT type person brings is is very important um, as you're deconflicting, you know, fixed wing, rotary wing, uh, naval assets, all that stuff comes into play. So, um it's been that's been a pretty cool part of the job is to see the the tactical communication and and coordination of airspace for uh, PR events. We don't get to drop any bombs on people, but um, <laughs> it's no, it's, but you need global
1: access on the moon. <laughs> I,
2: yeah. Well, that's the, that's the thing, right? It's you know like interplanetary access at that point. Um, I, I really want it, to. It, it's it's
0: sorry, sorry. No, I'm, I, was, I was just saying. I'm, I really want to stay on topic, but like I keep going to weapons. I'm like. In my brain, I'm like, well, if I fire a weapon on, on the moon, like, where does it go, and and how do we do this, and how do we fight <laughs> each other, and and then how do we affect each other's comms and all these other things? How hard is it to shoot out some someone else's satellite that's re- orbiting the moon? Ooh. You know, like because it doesn't take that much those, those to, are,
2: to to reach. Yeah, it. Those are other, discu- other discussions. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Um. So 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 NASA, you know, NASA, we're a civilian agency, and we, you know, we really support the the free free and meaningful access to the moon. Um, not all countries do. Um, and we, we've seen that by some of our near peer um, space-faring nations that, that want to, you know, potentially, you know, isolate areas of the moon for their own economic and, and political means. So, you know, for us, you know, I'm staying in my staying in my swim lane, um, you know, search and rescue and personal recovery is very important because we don't want an adversary to be able to to use that against us or to deny us access to our civilian commercial and governmental efforts. So um, we have to make sure that as we go to the moon, we follow those treaties and we are a good example for for all those other other countries to follow. Um, And I will say there's a lot of really dedicated people within the the defense community that are looking at those efforts for ad- for adversarial influence on the moon to make sure that we are keeping apprised of developments overseas for, of other countries and making sure we're they're protecting our our civilian and potential military interests in cis lunar space. Yeah.
0: I'll leave it at that. No, nah, it makes sense. Uh, the the other things I, I keep going back to in my head are, are all the space trash out there and all the threats with that or or problems. And then like the the radiation and when we talk about comms, I'm like, there's no ionosphere. There's no, you know, like you're, you're out there unprotected and, and alone. And so like how you, you have the suits, um, you know, like remember those old Blackhawk uniforms that had the, the tourniquets and everything that were embedded inside that really didn't work. You guys remember those at all? <laughs> so, like that's how I imagine the spacesuits are. But like, I, I don't know. I like I, I'm just trying to wrap my brain around how difficult it would be to recover someone stabilize them and and get them back with, with all those, those threats involved. And, you know, and how do you guys even get out of the the atmosphere to the moon with all that stuff floating around in our, uh, you know, beyond our upper upper atmosphere?
2: Yeah. So, you know, you know, the, the low earth orbit threat with all the space junk, um, we actually work a lot with, um, space command with their space radar. They, you know, after we had those anti-satellite tests, the Russians shot down one of their own satellites and it littered low earth orbit, um, we do a lot of work to make sure we don't have any kind of impacts on the space station or the launches. And we'll actually plan our launches around predicted those predicted kind of space junk um, events. And so, so far that hasn't been a huge threat to launching from the earth to space. And it, we've seen a lot of commercial companies that are getting ready to go start doing um, space junk removal, which I think is very important wow. to start you know, to mitigate a lot of these threats We're seeing a lot of companies that are like, hey, we can we can recover old booster bodies or old engines and deorbit them correctly. Um, So the space junk environment is is very important, but it currently hasn't been impacted yet. Um, We have to make sure that countries aren't shooting down satellites and uh, putting a bunch of junk up there. That's that's important. Um, But we also have folks in mission control that talk to Space Command um, with their space radar. And we can move this, move the space station out of the way of some of that junk and, and take preparations for that. Um, the radiation environment. Um, I'm not a nuclear engineer. I'm not a radiation expert. But that's always been one of the, the big problems we've had with real um, beyond low Earth orbit um, exploration, because the moon's the, the moon's um, or the Earth's magnetic field really protects you from radiation when you're close to the Earth. But out at the, at the moon and even onto Mars that becomes a highly charged radiation environment. So those are the kind of things that we're, as we're building moon bases, we're, we're putting in radiation protection. Um, you know, we're looking at how do you maybe live in those lunar caves um, and then use the lunar soil as a, a kind of a radiation barrier if there's any kind of solar flare and stuff like that. No,
0: that makes sense.
2: It's all way above my pay grade. I'm just I'm just the rescue guy. <laughs> yeah, no. But yeah, I'm just, but it's, it's like, but we, we go to meetings, you know, we work, you know, this is, this is like the kind of stuff like once in a career, right? Like we are like, and I've worked at NASA as an intern since 07, full time since 2012. And like, and now like, this is like legitimate. Like we're really, I mean, we're getting ready to launch rockets to the moon. Like this is like, you go out to KSC and there is a rocket almost as tall as a Saturn V sitting out there ready to go. Right. You go out there and you look at it and you're like, people built this. Like, no way. Like, it's like something out of my, you know, a kid's dream you know, a nerdy kid's dream, but it's still a dream. <laughs> and, and I'm like, this this is an amazing time for NASA where we're working with our commercial partners. So SpaceX is launching rockets like, like you know, three a week, I think a couple weeks ago, Jeez. like working with them to get reliable access to space, which is important for us as a nation. And then, you know, you have this, this moon rocket sitting out there ready to go. And you know, it's about to get real busy in space. And, and that's why we're trying to make sure, that NASA is working really well with the defense community because the, you know, the Air Force and kind of that global access part has served us so well in the past. We wanna make sure we keep that that relationship going into the future um, as the AOR for the DOD starts expanding beyond low earth orbit.
0: Right. I think the, the last thing I wanna ask about is, is I think the, the highest at risk I've ever felt is in between places, right? So there's, there's takeoff, which is high risk and landing, which is high risk. And it's a little different when you're talking about earth to moon. So like, I think once you get established on the moon and you have plans and once you're still close to the earth and you can get back down into the terrestrial, you, you have plans, but there's a huge gap in between. And what, what are you going to do if something happens on the in-between?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, so we actually briefed a uh, three-star uh, General Shaw on this exact thing. This is a very extremely high uh, visibility, and um, a lot of eyes are on this right now. It's called XGO, so beyond geostationary Earth orbit. So that that period from Earth to the Moon—that's you know Apollo thirteen, like all the stuff like that. Where if you have an event, how do we go um, find the spacecraft and then perform a rescue? So we're working with U.S. Spacecom to understand their authorities to go do a a space rescue because, you know, technically everything beyond low Earth orbit is U.S. Spacecom AOR, right? And every AOR needs to have a PR plan. So we're working with them to understand some of those authorities and, you know, how does NASA fit into that? And, you know, looking at using Earth-based systems to, to kind of locate the spacecraft on the way to the moon, you know, what's its, what's its state and how do we go do that rescue? So that's being looked at actively right now. Um, in our system, you know, we've really talked through it as, like, you could use the search and rescue beacon on a spacecraft to track it on the way to the moon, just like you would have if you had a downed aircraft or a, a beacon on a sinking vessel. You could track that to be able to know where it's at and provide status.
1: I, be, I think, and this is not a plug at all, at all, but I, I wonder if we would be at the same having the same exact conversation right now and considerations if a company like SpaceX hadn't been successful with their reusable rockets. Because, I mean, they, you, you said that they, you know, there was a time that they were launching uh, several a week. And it, it really does. I mean, I, I'll pop it up on YouTube. And like, oh, look, they're launching again, which is fantastic. And I watch it like every time I see it. But, um, I mean, their ability to just launch, recover, reset launch again is yeah, exactly has has really uh, you know fast forward us into the future um, I mean would we be where we're at right now or, or at least the things that you guys are working on if if yeah. they hadn't been successful I
2: think that it fundamentally changes the discussion right the, the ability for a, a company at very low cost to go do what they've been doing um, does fundamentally change at least the low earth orbit economy. It also, I think it's also helped NASA look at what commercial um, capabilities are out there so that we're not spending a lot of our money developing a capability that only we can use. You know, why would we want to spend billions of dollars to build, you know, a, a one-off spacesuit or a one-off spacecraft that only we can use when we can use that money instead to spur American industry so that you know, when I get you know my fifty million dollars, I can go buy a flight to the moon, um, and it's kind of self-supporting. So, so NASA is, is slowly shifting from being a a builder and developer of capability to a user of capability, um, and it's the same it's the same model you saw in the for the military in the early twentieth century, right? They yeah. they were, at one point were the builders of aircraft. And now they turned it over to industry, and the, you know why would the why would the Air Force need to build its own airplane when you can buy one from Boeing? Yep, you know that's and, that, and that's really where you know we're we're at that we're at that phase right now, and I think it's worked really well. Um, we have to be very cautious. There are you know there were a lot of growing pains to get there, and we have to be very patient with that and understand that um, it's not always going to be perfect. But we you know like I said, the eighty percent solution is sometimes good enough. And we have to make sure we're not doing this whole analysis by paralysis or paralysis by analysis. So um, to get back to your question without rambling, um, I think the SpaceX's success has been very good for commercial industry. It's also shown other companies they can do it. And as a a benefit, uh, NASA reaps those rewards because we get to go use those commercial services.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. I'm an 80% solution kind of guy as well. So, but um, I, I mean, Cody, I could talk to you all day long about this, um, but unfortunately, we don't have that kind of time, so uh, yeah, yeah. definitely appreciate you joining us, um, it's been a great conversation and I'm, I'm actually looking forward to, to when talking to my son about this, because like I said well, we we yeah. love space and we love the idea of, of everything that you guys are working on, and I definitely think it's important, and uh, like I told Brent before you know, maybe two years from now you'll be getting a uh, an application with a resume. <laughs> just throwing it out there, uh, but you bet. but we definitely appreciate you joining us and thanks for working on all the stuff that you guys are doing. So uh, yeah. for everybody that's else that's out there listening, uh, appreciate you tuning in, join in, like, subscribe, hit the little bell so that you know that when there's a new episode, and uh, we'll catch you guys later.